Beloved, you may or may not realize something. That what's about to happen here in this place for the next hour or so is a relatively rare occurrence in churches all across America. Preaching has fallen on hard times. Far too many pulpits are underused, underutilized. Sermons from way too many churches are short, shallow, trivial, man-centered, sometimes legalistic in terms of sets of do's and don'ts. But what's missing in way, way too many pulpits is a long and deep exposition of the Word of God. People will come to me and ask me a question, something along these lines, which is, how do you go about choosing a church? They might have a friend or a family member or something that's moved into a new community, and they're seeking to find a church, and they're looking for advice. How do you go about choosing a church? And I answer that question in the same way every single time. And I answer it with a question of my own. And the question is, how do they handle the word of God? That's how you go about choosing a church. There are all kinds of other selection criteria that people use. They will look at things like doctrinal statements or facilities or programs or the music or the convenience of the times and places of service. Some will look at the ethnic diversity of the church. Others will look for friendliness. And those things are all important to one degree or another. But none of them rises to this level, and that is how do they handle the scriptures? That's the key. That's the important point. A church will never mature unless and until it has been fed a very long and steady diet of strong Bible teaching. That's the only way a church will mature. And a church can have all kinds of problems, and every church does have its problems, its deficiencies. But how they are cured is through the preaching of the word of God. If the leadership of the church and the congregation of the church are committed to the faithful week in and week out exposition of the scriptures, that they will live their lives under submission to the spirit of God working through the word of God, then there is no problem a church has, no deficiency that cannot and ultimately will not be cured. It's all here. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and it's a personal admonition to Timothy, but I think it has certainly application to this whole subject that I want to talk to you about this morning. And Paul writes to Timothy over in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 15, and follows these words. He says, Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. From childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Therefore, Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through chapter 4 and verse 2. Open your Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. We are looking at verses 1 through 16. We have been looking at verses 1 through 16. We've been doing so under a title called Christian Unity, an Elusive Jewel. And we arrive this morning at the sixth and final message from this section. Let me read the text for you, and we have a lot to cover, and so we're going to have to jump in. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is the word of God. Last week, in our fifth message, we looked at the question having to do with spiritual gifts and their relationship to unity. Now, this week, we are in our sixth and final question, and it is still running in the vein of the giftedness and its, and its use in the unity of the church, how it produces unity in the church. We structured this whole study in a question and format, a question and answer format, right? And so 11 questions have gone before over the prior five weeks. We're now at the 12th question, 12th and final question. So last week, again, just to sort of catch us up a little bit in terms of context, we looked at verses 7 to 10. And there Paul tells us that each and every member of the body of Christ has been given both a spiritual gift or gifts and a grace commission to use those gifts 
for the benefit of the local church, for the body of Christ. We also learned last week that Jesus gained the authority to give those gifts through his incarnation and its subsequent death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where from that position of sovereign authority as a divine warrior who has conquered all of our enemies, sin, death, and Satan, he then gives gifts to his church. That was last week. We walked away from it understanding that all of us have been gifted. All of us have been gifted. And because we have been gifted, we have been given a divine grace commission to utilize that giftedness together ministering to one another here in the body. Paul now, beginning in verse 11, continuing the the theme of giftedness and unity is, is going to transition to look at some specific individuals who have been gifted and are themselves a gift to the church. That's verses 11 through 16. So here's my question. This is the big overarching question, the twelfth and final question of our study on unity. It's this. Why does Paul single out five gifted men in his teaching on gifts and unity? Why does he do this? Now, I think the best way to get at this question is to break it down into some bite-sized chunks and to look at those individual pieces, and I want to do that by posing three additional questions. So the answer to the big question is going to be found in the answers to three subsidiary questions. Okay, that's my simple format for you. One big question answered through three other questions. Okay, here the questions are. They're simple. The first one is this. Who are these men? Who are these men? Second question, what is their purpose? What is their purpose? And then finally, what are the results of their efforts? So who are they? What is their purpose? And what is the result of their ministry? That gets us to the main idea that Paul is after here, and that is, why does he single out these particular individuals, gifted men, in a discussion of spiritual giftedness and unity? So, let's begin. Who are they? Who are these gifted men? Verse 11, there are five of them. He gave some as apostles, one. Some as prophets, two. Some as evangelists, three. Some as pastors, four. Some as teachers, five. Five gifted men. They are an example of the greater truth from verse 7, right? To each of us, notice Paul included himself there in the us, to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, Christ sovereignly bestowed upon those whom he chooses according to his own prerogative to gift them in certain ways and to commission them in the use of those gifts. An illustration of that is here in verse 11 with these five men. They are gifted themselves. They are gifted men. But they are not just gifted men. They themselves are gifts to the body at large. Now, for the sake of time, because I wanted to finish this in Six sermons, not 16. We're going to take an abbreviated look at these five men. Okay, so it's an abbreviated look at these five men. But let's just begin. The first, apostles. He gave some as apostles. Apostles, the word means one sent on a mission. One sent on a mission. Primarily, it is used in the New Testament to speak of the 11, the original 12 minus Judas, plus Matthias, Acts chapter 1, and then later, Paul. There are other uses of the word in the New Testament to be sure, but the primary use of the word in the New Testament, apostles, is a reference to the 11 plus Matthias to make 12 plus Paul, one born out of time, he says, number 13. They were chosen. 
They were chosen by Christ to be his witnesses and sent on a mission to proclaim him throughout the world. We're going to jump around a little bit this morning, so loosen up those frigid fingers and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1. We'll just look at some of this very quickly. Acts 1. In order to be qualified to be an apostle, one had to be a witness of the resurrection. Acts 1, verse 21. Therefore, Peter's writing here because Judas went out and hung himself. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they must be able to speak from an eyewitness perspective to the, the ministry of Christ and his resurrection and ascension. Now immediately one might think, now what about Paul? How did that all work out? Well, it worked out for Paul because Christ appeared to Paul directly. Paul references that in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says there that effectively I am the last living person to have seen Christ alive in his resurrection ascended form. Okay? So by the way, all the people who say they've seen Jesus, nonsense. Okay? Paul says you haven't. I'm the last guy. I saw him. And I'm the last one to see him. Check it out. 1 Corinthians 15. So these apostles have an have a important role, a primary purpose. And it's given to us over here in Ephesians chapter um, 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse, or not beginning, but in verse 20. And that is that they are to lay the foundation for the multi-ethnic New Testament church. We'll pick it up 19. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to Gentiles here, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, speaking here of the Jews, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation, here it is, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So they are the foundation. Foundations are laid once. When the foundation has been completed, there is no further need for foundational activities. Hang on to that idea. Paul also tells us in chapter 3 and verse 5 that another primary purpose of these apostles was to receive and declare the revelation of God's word specifically with regard to this new entity called the church. Paul says here, verse 5, in which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the same body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, we covered all of this stuff in great detail when we were back there. Okay, so their foundation to the church, they have been given the revelation to, to, to unveil the church, which is that which was unforeseen in the Old Testament, which God is doing here in this day and age. Furthermore, apostles were unique, and they were unique in that they were given by Christ certain ability or power, spiritual power, to confirm his calling of them. I mean, not just anybody can claim to be an apostle. You can claim, but it's not credible. It's not credible unless one can do the signs of an apostle. And so if we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12... And verse 12, we find it right there in Paul's defense of, his, of God's call to him as an apostle. Paul was also aware of the fact that he didn't meet on the surface the criteria that had earlier been laid out for the other 12, right? He hadn't been one of the 12 disciples. And so throughout his ministry, his credibility was always under attack. And so Paul always was in a position of having to defend himself as a true apostle. One of the ways he defends himself is his reference to the miraculous. 
He says, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, the ability to do the miraculous was the authentication that this person's claim to be an apostle. Okay? It was the ability to do these amazing signs, wonders, and miracles. These are the apostles. Go back to Ephesians 4. Christ gave some as apostles. Some. And he gave some as prophets. That's the next group. Who are the prophets? Well, again, they are been referred to here in chapter 20, or chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 5, chapter 3, verse 5, right? So they were grouped with the apostles in both of those places. And the prophets are this. They are, they are specially gifted men provided by Christ to his church for the purpose of edifying, comforting, and encouraging his church. We find that over in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, Paul says over there, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. So they had a purpose of, of, of um, edifying, comforting, encouraging the church. Sometimes they spoke about future events. Now, often when we use the word prophecy, that's what immediately comes to our mind. We say prophecy, oh, you must be telling the future. Well, as you read the Old Testament, yes, they spoke of the future, but the majority of the time they didn't speak about the future. The majority of the time they spoke about the past. And they spoke about how the nation was either not living according to prior revelation and needed to be called back to it, or they just need to be exhorted and encouraged to live out the reality of the truth that's gone before. So these New Testament prophets, one of whom is Agabus, you know his name. Uh, we won't turn there, but Acts 11, 27, 28, Agabus does predict the future. He predicts a coming famine. Agabus is also the one that predicts that Paul will be arrested and bound in Jerusalem, right? And then carried off by the Romans. So he does occasionally predict the future. But I would suggest to you that like their Old Testament counterparts, the prophets weren't uh, necessarily always speaking about future things as much as they were taking prior revelation that had come through prophets and applying it to the people of God of that day. They were foundational, apostles and prophets. And because they were foundational, when the foundation was complete, they disappeared. I would suggest to you that is the completion of the New Testament. When the New Testament was complete, the prophets and apostles passed from the scene. The last living apostle was John. At the end of the book of Revelation, he is very clear that all prophetic speaking from that point forward is done. Don't add to it. Don't deduct from it, right? It's complete. So think of it like the Old Testament prophets. When the Old Testament canon was finished, the prophets disappeared. For 400 years, there was no prophet. They were silent. The prophets didn't begin again until the coming of Christ, the unveiling of the new revelation. Both prophets and apostles were somewhat itinerant in their ministries, which means they moved around. Okay? They tended to move around. They traveled, they planted, they strengthened, they established local churches, foundational kinds of ministries. All right, so the apostles and the prophets. Third, back in Ephesians 4, verse 11, some as apostles, some as prophets, and then some as evangelists. Some as evangelists. Now, all the names listed here, the, the, the evangelists are the most enigmatic. They're the most enigmatic because there's the least biblical revelation about who they are and what they did. In fact, the, uh, the actual term here, evangelist, is only used 
two other times in the New Testament. It's only used two other times. And uh, one of them is a reference to Philip over in Acts 21, verse 8. You can see it over there. Acts 21, verse 8. It says, on the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. So Philip is called an evangelist. The other occurrence of it in the New Testament is in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, where Paul refers to Timothy, and he tells him to do the work of an evangelist. He doesn't call him an evangelist, but he tells him to do the work of an evangelist. So, what is an evangelist? Well, we can, I think, get at the idea by, by understanding that the, that the noun here, evangelist, is related, of course, to the, to the verb, to evangelize. And uh, the idea is to, behind that is to preach the gospel. So, what is an evangelist? An evangelist is one who preached the gospel. One who preached the gospel. A number of commentators in, in uh, talking about this, I think they're on the right line here, and, and basically what they say is that evangelists were people who went about everywhere preaching the gospel. And they worked likely both inside and outside of the church preaching the gospel. If you turn over to 3 John, it may be there that we have not by reference, but by illustration, it may well be here that we have the work of evangelists. Third John, chapter 1. It's about as funny as I'll be all day today. <laughs> Third John, beginning in verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers, and they testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men, so that we may be, such, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So John is writing here to his beloved friend Gaius, and he is uh, instructing him that these, these individuals are going to be coming, coming through town, as it were, and they're going to need to be taken care of. They're going to be need lodging. They're going to need food. They're going to need to be, have financial, um, their financial needs met to help them on to the next stop on their journey. So they were those, it says, that went out for the sake of the name. That is, that they went out in order to preach the name of Christ. And so I think we may have there the evangelists. If you wanted to equate it with something today, I, I think it probably most closely equate with church planting missionaries, those that are sent around the world preaching the gospel to try to establish churches. These would be the evangelists. So he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. Now, this last category or categories has been subject to some significant difference of opinion. There is an old and popular, still, I think, understanding that, that it is a reference to one kind of individual, a pastor-teacher, as opposed to a reference to two kinds of individuals, pastors and teachers. And grammatically, the two plural nouns connected with the conjunction and uh, was often thought to be the, the grammatical basis for understanding this as two nouns in reference to the same person. That is, they were a pastor-teacher. And you, you can find that today. Many, many, um, well, not many, but there are um, preachers who refer to themselves as pastor-teachers. But further work in... in um, Koine Greek and the grammar of Koine Greek, I think, is, is 
upended that understanding. The two plural nouns connected there with the conjunction, called the Granville Sharp rule, but anyway, is uh, not, doesn't apply here. And that actually we are talking about two different individuals. They are closely related, to be sure, but that they're not the same person. So on that understanding, basically, what you have is one is a subset of the other. In other words, pastor is a subset of teacher. Okay? Pastor is a subset of teacher. There are teachers and there are pastors who are subsets of teachers. In other words, that uh, all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. Okay? That would be, I think, a better understanding of the grammar here. All teachers are not pastors, but all pastors are teachers. Okay? I think I said that right. And you notice over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, so I'll go ahead and flip you there. 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul's enumerating gifts in um, verse 28 of, of uh, chapter 12. We see a, a, a listing of the gifted men. And we see the same order, right? He appointed in the church first apostles, verse 28, second prophets, and then notice third, teachers. Third, teachers. There's no mention there of pastors. So it's, prophet, it's apostles, prophets, teachers. Okay, so if that's the right way to understand it here over in Ephesians 4, and I think it is, then there are actually five groupings of individuals here. But there's that close connection. So I think that's a correct way to understand it, and that's how I understand my role here in the body. Okay, I am a teacher who is also a pastor. Now, what does a pastor do? What does a pastor do? I mean, he only works an hour a day, once a week. So what else do you do? I drink coffee, I talk on the phone. It's a great job, would you like it? Now, what does a pastor do? Well, I think within the name itself, the name means shepherd. The name means shepherd. Poimain is the Greek term. It means shepherd. And I think that is a, is a good way of understanding what is a pastor and what does a pastor do. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd cares for the sheep. A shepherd protects the sheep. A shepherd leads the sheep to good pasture, provides for their needs. So I think spiritually that's what a pastor does. A pastor cares for the flock of God shepherds the flock of God, protects the flock of God, leads the flock of God. The teacher, didaskalos, has a little bit different role, and it's a different spiritual gift. The teacher is one who conveys information, factual matters, skills, and beyond that, I think in a, in a biblical sense, um, the ability to make moral evaluations. Teachers are actually a quite prevalent term in the New Testament. I think it's 59 times that teachers are mentioned. So they're all over the place. Pastors are a little more rare. So one is conveying information. The other is more of a people work. Involved in people's lives. Not all teachers are pastors, meaning not all who are conveying biblical truth are involved intimately in people's lives. But those who are involved intimately in people's lives must also be conveying biblical truth. Because ultimately, beloved, no change will occur no real, no lasting change can occur unless and until the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the human heart. I can't reach your heart. You can't even reach your heart 
It is the Spirit of God through his word that changes us. So a related question here is how do pastors relate to the other terms used in the New Testament for leadership? Right? What about elders? How do pastors and teachers and elders relate with regard to the New Testament? Next month, we begin the, the spring semester of the training hour, and in that spring semester, Micah is going to answer that question for you. Okay, Micah's not here to, to know that I've shoveled this off onto him, <laughs> but I actually did check with him ahead of time to be sure that what I said was true. Mike is teaching a class on what's called ecclesiology. In other words, how is the church put together? And he will, he will answer your questions in far more detail than I'm about to, but I am going to address the question. I'm going to address your question. The New Testament recognizes basically three names for leaders, exclusive of deacons. It uses the term pastors, poimen, It uses the term episkopos, which is translated as overseer or bishop. And it uses the term presbyteros, which is translated elder. So how do pastors, overseers, and elders relate to each other? That's the question. And if we can get a good feel for this... In Acts chapter 20, because all three words are used in the exact same context. So I'm going to take you there to Acts chapter 20. Where you can see that the three terms are used in reference to the same individuals. So pastor, elder, overseer, all used to refer to the same people. So Acts chapter 20, verse 17 Luke is narrating here. He says, From Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, presbyteros. He sent to Miletus and he called to himself the presbyteros, the elders of the church. And then you go down to verse 28. And Paul's instructing them there. And he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The word is episkopos. So he's called for the presbyteros to come to him. He's instructing them, and as he speaks to them, he says that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos. To shepherd, poimen, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Okay? So he's called the elders who have been made overseers, and he's telling them to shepherd the flock of God. So how do these words fit together? Here's how they fit together. The term elder refers to who a man is. It refers to his character. Think about 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example. You can go ahead and look at that. I'm glad Mike is going to straighten all this out for you. I'm getting a lot of looks out here. That's good. They're good looks. They're saying, what is he talking about? Trustworthy statement, if anyone aspires to the office of the overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach and, and so forth. So, uh, and, and then there are all of these characteristics or character qualities for one who is to serve there in the role of the elder. Okay? So, for example, over in Titus chapter 1, and beginning in verse 5, where there's a, a companion list, Paul says, there, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, and on it goes. Okay? So an elder, the word elder is emphasizing uh, what the man is, his character. 
The word overseer speaks of what he does. Okay? He oversees the congregation. And pastor speaks about the way that he does it. How he oversees a congregation. 1 Peter chapter 5. You kind of get the same idea. Peter writes, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, right? So, poimene, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but voluntarily and so forth. So you see it again used that way. Okay, so, say it one more time. Elder is about character, what a man is. Overseer is about what a man does. Pastor is about how he goes about doing it. Okay? Now, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 that all elders must be able to teach. All right? Go back there and be refreshed about that. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2. An overseer then must... Then there's a whole list of things, one of which is he must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. So how do we tie that into what Paul speaks of here in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about pastors as a subset of teachers? Why didn't he use the word elders? Why doesn't Paul say here in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as elders and teachers? Here's my answer. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul indicates that there are certain elders who have been gifted in such a way that their teaching ministry is of a greater power and, and quality than other elders. Notice here in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. But the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. In other words, there are certain elders who, by virtue of God's giftedness in their lives, are able to teach at a, at a, in a way and at a level that the rest of the elders are not, and those elders are to be financially supported by the church. Those that excel at the ministry here, notice it in verse 17, the ministry of preaching and teaching. So all elders have to be able to teach, but not all elders are called and gifted to a preaching, teaching ministry. Those that are, according to verse 18, are to be financially supported by the congregation. They're to be financially supported by the congregation. Now, a congregation may choose to support financially other elders, other pastors, but they're not obligated to. They are obligated to financially support those who are called, gifted, and excel at the preaching, teaching ministry. That's the ones I believe Paul's talking about back in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, that he has called some as pastors and teachers. They are specially gifted by God and commissioned by him for a purpose. What is their purpose? That's the second question this morning. What is their purpose? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God 
to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There are certain men that Christ has sovereignly gifted and provided to his church that that fill a special role in that church. Teaching pastors are one of them. But why? Why did Christ give these five categories of men, verse 11, to his church? The answer that Paul gives us here in verses 12 and 13 is twofold. There is an immediate purpose and there is an ultimate purpose. The immediate purpose, you see it in verse 12, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The equipping of the saints for the work of service. In other words, that those that are called and gifted to teach the scriptures to the church have a purpose of equipping everybody else in the church to minister their spiritual gifts. The word equipped or equipping is is an interesting word. It originally has a medical background to it, and it has the idea of of setting a limb or fixing a dislocated shoulder, that sort of thing. It later came to do with the idea of furnishing a room or preparing a garment. In its, in its verbal form here, the equipping ministry, it's, it speaks of putting things in order. Eventually, it came to have the idea of preparing for something. This word translated for you as equipping. So it is to equip the saints. Why do we teach the scriptures here? Sunday morning after Sunday morning after Sunday morning is to equip you. It's to equip you, it's to prepare you for something. And that something is your ultimate purpose, verse 12, which is the building up of the body of Christ. The building up of the body of Christ. Why are we to minister our spiritual gifts one to another here in this congregation? It's so this congregation will be built up in the likeness of Christ. How long will that go? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. In other words, until the entire congregation is matured to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So how long will you, if you're part of Foothill Bible Church, will you need to continue to minister Christ's giftedness in your life? Answer, until every one of us is mature. Until every single one of us is mature. And part of a mature body is that it reproduces, right? We even know that in the natural realm, right? When a, when a human being reaches maturity, they reach the ability to reproduce. A mature church is a reproducing church. If it's a reproducing church, that means that there are all the time new people being added to the local body who are immature. They're young. They're babes in Christ. And so they need to be built up. They need to be matured. So how long... Are we going to be at this together? How long do you think? Until Jesus comes. That's exactly right. Okay? We're never going to arrive. We are never, ever, ever going to arrive. We are maturing. All of us are maturing. None of us have arrived. We're all in that process. Right? So we will continue to minister to one another building each other up in the faith until the return of Christ. By the way, how do you know when somebody's mature in Christ? Here's a a quick diagnosis. Does their life accurately resemble Jesus? So you want to know, am I I a mature person in Christ? Ask yourself this question. Do, can I say like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ? If you can say that about your life, then yes, you are a mature Christian. That doesn't mean there's no further room to grow, but, but you've arrived at a basic level of maturity, okay? Which only means that there's a double responsibility to help others. 
Why does Paul insert, we're going to circle back to this. Why the, these, these five word-based ministries. First Peter, first Peter 4, I think, shed some light on this. It's not in your notes. So I get myself in trouble too. First Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. Peter says there, each, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we're talking about the same thing here. And notice what he says. He says, verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, Christ may be glor- God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The speaking gifts, the teaching gifts, are to build up those with the service gifts, that together the body builds itself up. In other words, I want to make sure that if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, I don't have a spiritual gift of speaking. God has not given me a speaking gift. So does that mean that I'm not all that valuable? And And the answer is, is no, you're exceedingly valuable. The speaking gifts are to serve the serving gifts by growing your understanding of the scriptures, which will enable you to use your serving gifts in a way that that edifies and grows the local congregation. So what are the results? That's our third question. What are the results of the efforts of these Bible teachers, verse 11. Paul says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Paul is warning here against unstableness in the church. Unstable churches are untaught churches. Now, Jesus is not going to lose any of his children. He's pretty clear about that in John 10, right? All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will lose not one. Right? No one can snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one, he says. So we're not talking about this this unstableness, meaning that Christians are somehow going to fall away from from God or, or lose their salvation. But instead, Paul's talking about the danger for churches to remain in infancy, to be bounced around. He uses, look at the terms he uses here. He uses um, meteorological kinds of terms, right? He, and, uh, and he talks about nature, waves and winds and those kinds of things. But he uses this word trickery in verse 14. Do you see it? Trickery. By trickery of men. It's an interesting word, I think. It, it originally means dice players or dice playing. People who roll dice. And the idea behind it is, is uh, that they are dishonest in their rolling of dice. I guess gamblers were known to be dishonest even 2,000 years ago, right? And so Paul's applying it here, and he's talking about the church being taken advantage of by people who are dishonest with regard to spiritual things. One of the reasons why the church needs to be taught the Scriptures faithfully, repeatedly, deeply over long, long, long periods of time is because we're susceptible to being bounced around. And the younger we are in Christ, the more susceptible we are to being bounced around, to being taken advantage of by teachers, by by tricksters, by fraudsters, by people who are scheming. Look at it in verse 14, the end there. They're scheming to defraud you. 
Now, Paul, we're talking about that 2,000 years ago. That's a long time before the Internet. There are a lot of frauds out on the Internet. I mean, they've multiplied out on the Internet. You, at your fingertips is all kinds of, of deceptive, false, deceitful, fraudulent, satanic teachings. They're everywhere. And they're popular. And so you need, I need, we need regular deep Bible teaching in order to enable us to grow in our faith so we're not like children, like infants here in verse 14. But in fact, rather than being those that are bounced around, we become, verse 15, truth tellers. So you do have a speaking role. You're to become a truth teller. You're to tell, speaking the truth in love. So there's a, there's a sense in which all of us are speaking to one another. And we're to be speaking the truth of the scriptures to one another in love. Read the Bibles with, you know, one-to-one with each other. Read good Christian literature together. Be in small groups, study the scriptures together, be constantly about speaking the truth in love one to another. Why? Because we all need it. You can't survive on one meal a week. Okay? Right? Nobody would try to, try to um, do that in their, in, in their physical life. You wouldn't just go to a buffet, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, an all-you-can-eat buffet, and spend the afternoon there and eat everything you could and go, okay, I'm good. I mean, you might be good through Sunday night, but Monday morning, you're going to need to eat again. And so we need to be truth-speaking to each other throughout the week, constantly feeding one another the truth of the Scriptures. Through your generosity... I am blessed to be able to spend significant time during the week preparing to speak to you on Sunday morning and to share with you things that I've discovered in the scriptures that you're not going to have the time nor the training, many of you, to be able to discover on your own. That's my role. Your role is then to take it, chew it up, digest it, and share it with one another in love. How do I know... Or how do you know if you're speaking the truth in love, by the way? How do you know if you're a truth teller in love? Here's the answer. Do you really care about the person's well-being? Do you really care about their well-being or do you care about being right? Okay? Often young Christians are good truth tellers. They're just kind of low on the love scale. Right? It's more like I tell the truth with a shotgun. So, caring about the person is the love that then emboldens you to speak, right? It's not loving to not speak. It's self-loving to not speak. But to speak truth to people in a gentle, winsome way. Not to be right, but because you care about them. Speaking the truth in love. And when that's going on in the body, look at what happens. The whole body grows up. And becomes like Christ. Every single individual part functioning together. Every joint. By the way, what's the greatest commandment? Love, isn't it? Love for God and love for your neighbor. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Well, this finishes our time here in verses 1 to 16. But before I walk away from it, you're not going anywhere today, are you? Before I walk away from it, I want to just spend a couple more minutes. I've been asked to, um, before we walk away from this, to, to make some comments about leaving churches. Like, when is it legit to leave a church? Okay, we do a Q&A down here on Sundays afterwards. I invite you to come. But that question has come up repeatedly here. When is it okay, when is it legit to break the external unity of a church and to walk away, to leave? So let me just 
I'll give you some ideas along this line. You can kind of develop them from here. But let me start with uh, some, some legit reasons to leave a church, okay? I've got seven of them. I'm just going to go through them pretty quick. Seven reasons why it's legitimate to leave the church. I mean, I have been hammering away on unity here, right? Hopefully you've gotten that message. Unity is huge. It's really, really important. But there are times to leave. So when is it okay to leave? Here they are. Let me just go through them. Number one, if there's a lack of in-depth Bible teaching, a lack of in-depth Bible teaching, and here it is, after respectful discussion with the leadership, it is obvious that this will not change. Respectful discussion with the leadership. Okay? Third time I'll say it. Respectful discussion with the leadership. That doesn't mean that you privately conclude, these people are heretics, I'm out of here. Okay? Give them, their, give them a chance. And remember this, questions prick the conscience, accusations harden the heart. So if you walk in there with your Bible and your shotgun ready to show them why they are so unfaithful to the Scriptures, you're not going to get far. Okay? So here it is. Number one reason, a lack of in-depth Bible discussion or uh, teaching would be a legitimate reason to leave a church. Secondly, a failure on the part of leadership to submit to the authority of the Scriptures over their own lives and ministry. In other words, a double standard. Okay? The leadership has to be under the same scriptures as everybody else. Third, ungodly people in positions of leadership would be a reason to leave a church. This would be things like blatant, unconfessed sin or duplicity. Okay? We're all sinners. We all sin uh, through our own weakness and on occasion, in faithlessness, we, we, make a, we make a decision to sin. It's true of all of us. Okay? But if it's blatant and it's unconfessed, then it's time to leave. Four, congregational toleration of sin, such as gossip, lying, or sexual immorality. In other words, if the congregation is okay with people gossiping, or the congregation is okay with people who lie, doesn't bother them. Or they're okay with people who are involved in sexual immorality. It's not a concern to them. Then it's time to leave that church. Five, it's related. A failure to practice biblical church discipline. A failure to practice biblical church discipline. A church that will not practice biblical church discipline is not a church you should be part of, okay? Christ has given this to us. It's not an option. And it's something that for it to be effective, the congregation has to be as committed to it as the leadership, okay? Six, a personal change of convictions whereby you can no longer in good conscience support the ministry of the church. In other words, you have changed, if that's the case, let me say this to you, go slow here. Go really slow here. Discuss your concerns, get wise counsel. This is where it happens, that I see it happen most often. Okay? Somebody, it's almost like a second conversion. They come to understand the doctrines of grace. The light bulbs go off, right? God is sovereign in salvation. They, they see it like the first time in their lives. And now all they can see is everything through that lens. Right? Every sermon that doesn't end with the five points of Calvinism in their mind is not a biblical sermon. So they may find themselves in a church that, is, that doesn't see it that way yet. Okay? So go slow with people. Just because you've discovered something, that's not a time to conclude that everybody else is unfaithful to the Scriptures and you must separate yourself from them. Okay? Go slow. Go slow. But it may be. You find yourself in a church that, that you're in constant disagreement with what's coming across the pulpit. And then if that's true, you need to leave. You need to leave and not stay and be a divisive factor in the church. Seven, relocation. Relocation. In other words, you move. If you move 
to such, you know, a distance such that you can no longer be actively involved in the church. And actively involved in the church is not getting here at 10.30 on Sunday morning. Okay, I know this is a commuter culture, but, but folks, uh, traffic is awful. <laughs> so you need to take those things into, into account if you're, if you're relocating. If you find yourself where you're no longer able to be part of the church because you're driving too far, then you need to think about another church where you can be involved. Because it's not about what you get on Sunday morning. It's about what you give. And you can only give if you're there. So relocation's a factor. All right, three reasons not to leave. All right, that was seven, seven reasons legit why you could leave. Here's three not to leave. Number one, and this is the number one reason why people leave. Unresolved personal conflict. This is the number one reason why people leave churches. Unresolved personal conflict. In other words, you, you got into a hassle with somebody and you're not going to stay and work it out. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Number two. This one closely follows number one. Number two. Feeling lonely and unconnected. I just don't have any friends here anymore. What have you done about it? Nobody ever invites me into their home. How many have you invited into your home? I don't, I don't have anybody that I'm close to. Are you part of a small group? Are you actively part of a small group? How's your attendance? Feeling lonely and unconnected, not a valid reason. Why? Because you can do something about it. And you should do something about it. Because if you're feeling lonely and unconnected, what that means is the rest of the body is not getting benefit of the giftedness that Christ has uniquely given to you for the purpose of ministering to the body. It's a change of focus. And number three, issues of personal preference. And that includes things like musical quality, style, selection, the whole thing. Okay? These are issues of preference. That is not a legitimate reason to leave. Okay? Personal preference. That's not the same as theological conviction. And you need to be wise enough to know the difference. So, hopefully that's helpful as we finish this section together here on unity. Next week is Christmas. We've got a Christmas message. It's called The Humiliation of Christmas. Okay, so you come for that. And then uh, on New Year's Eve, I don't know yet, but I'm thinking about preaching through the entire book of Revelation in one day <laughs> on New Year's Eve. I'm serious. I'm, I'm really, I'm serious as a heart attack. I was telling Carol this morning, honey, I think that's what I want to do. And she gave me the same reaction that you did. But I'm really thinking about it. So anyway. Well, I hope to see you all next week so I can wish you Merry Christmas then. But go in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this uh, time we have spent, these six sermons on unity. How important it is, Father. It's really the external demonstration of the inner spiritual reality of us being immersed into the body of Christ universally and, Father, as the New Testament speaks of so often, local, the local manifestation of that in local churches. Oh, Lord, help us to, to begin to value and appreciate unity the way you do. Change our hearts wherever they need to be changed. Help us to get our eyes off ourselves, to not seek to come to what we can get, but to seek to come for what we can give. That Christ would be really pleased as he looks at this church. We ask it in his name, amen.